This is a podcast from Queen's University Belfast, shaping a better world since 1845. Pandemic, of or pertaining to a disease prevalent over a whole country or the world. Part 5, Economies Under Strain. Graham Brownlow and Niall Farrell are both lecturers in economics at Queen's Management School. They've been looking at the possible economic ramifications of coronavirus. So I think we wanted to talk about, we have our agenda of what we want to discuss in terms of, maybe we could just start with the first item on the agenda, which was uh, the macro policy and how we see the macro policy developing uh, with COVID. Okay, so uh, in the case of the UK, there's been very much an alphabet game in terms of thinking about the forecasts of how the economy is going to grow. So the most optimistic version is that it's going to be a V-shaped recovery, but there's more pessimistic versions, which U-shape, L-shape, et cetera, et cetera, and W-shape. Um, I think there's little doubt now that the more pessimistic version of, uh, is now suggestive that the V-shape is too optimistic, that we're not just going to see a 10% decline in output, say, and a 10% recovery. Um, that doesn't seem plausible. Uh, instead, you could, you could think of you know, the U-shape or L-shapes. The U-shape is a much more gradual recovery. Um, the L-shape is uh, even worse. It's a, a very much a, a prolonged stagnation. Uh, but perhaps there's a good argument to be said for the plausibility of a W-shape recovery in the UK, given British economic history. Simply, the, U- the, the W-shape suggests that you have the initial dip that we're experiencing. There'll be some kind of recovery, but that recovery won't be very strong and it'll lead to another dip. Um, And the reason why that might be the case is because in the UK, consumption accounts for about two thirds of national income. So what happens to consumption will be very crucial to the overall aggregate picture, the level Y, you know, so from introductory economics to your Y. Um, So, Think about the process like this. A number of factors, okay? So what, what's what's been happening during the COVID lockdown is a process of involuntary savings for a lot of people. They can't get to the shops. They can't spend. They're going to the cash machine to check their balance or whatever, and they're seeing unusually high levels of savings. Meanwhile, their hair is getting longer, and they can't get a cappuccino. So, uh, and they certainly can't book any you know foreign holidays and whatnot. So all of these are consumption uh, that have gone missing and there is in short a process of pent up demand. So once the lockdown ends, I can see very clearly people running to the hairdressers uh, and Starbucks and whatnot to consume. Well, good news for the aggregate picture, of course, is as people consume, um, that one-off boom boosts the economy. So we look like we're going to a V, okay? But, you know, much of that consumption uh, is either one off or there's a finite number of those consumptions you can have. I mean, you can only drink so many cappuccinos, no matter how deprived you are. Uh, You can only have so many haircuts if you're lucky enough to have hair. Um, And uh, all of that suggests that that process can't really be sustained. Um, That suggests to me that, you know, on the consumption side, that a large chunk of consumption may not... uh, takes very far. There's also a lot of concern 
that a lot of people have been very spooked by this crisis, both in Ireland and the UK. And I've seen some, I've been at seminars uh, online of both cases, um, in which there's policymakers are worried that actually in the case many consumers will not go spending on cappuccinos and haircuts and whatnot. Um, and that they, because of job insecurity, may just sit on their uh, consumption. Now, if that's the case, then even a, a W-shape recovery is even too pessimistic, uh, is too optimistic. And it could be that maybe we are heading towards a U-shape or L-shape. Uh, I just think given the, the proportion of consumption in the UK economy and given the amount of savings that people have, have now been forced involuntarily to hold, and given all the sort of consumption requirements that people want, I think there will be a consumption splurge after the lockdown, and that's going to affect the uh, the big the headline figures. I just wonder if anything more substantial can sustain economic growth after that, particularly in a world of very low interest rates. So it's not as if we can look at interest rates and say uh, on the consumption side that interest rates are a, an impediment. They're not at all. I mean, interest rates are so low that it's not going to have any impact whatsoever on consumption. Yeah, absolutely. Um, related to that then, one point that, that's very interesting is the, the um, opening up procedure and the nature of that. And I think this is going to be quite uh, interesting to see how this happens and whether, because essentially it's it's a balancing act because you're balancing the cost of the lockdown in terms of the economic cost and other maybe mental health costs and impacts on education with the public health benefits. And the first stage, that was quite, it's quite clear that the public health benefit of lockdown was quite strong and it was the correct decision to make. But as as the uh, crisis has progressed and the uh, transmission rate has fallen, well, then the benefit, in inverted commas, of the lockdown has declined against this perhaps pretty stagnant uh, public or economic cost. And measuring that threshold where the the benefit, the declining benefit with the increase, this pretty stagnant cost where they cross over is quite a difficult decision. And it's made more difficult by a number of factors I was thinking about there recently. First of all, um, the, the public health benefit is quite concentrated. We're very, we're very aware of it. We're seeing it. It's quite salient. Um, but however, these other benefits are quite dispersed. So you think about, it's very hard to quantify maybe impacts on child development in terms of education at home, inequalities that may arise around that, impacts on perhaps people's uh, other health, physical health, pe- people who are maybe perhaps not exercising as much as, do, as they would otherwise, although the, perhaps there's evidence that people might exercise a bit more. But all these other f- effects that when, when you add them together are, are not insignificant, um, are very hard to quantify relative to maybe the quite obvious um, public health impact. So that makes the decision a lot more difficult. I think there's a political economy argument here as well, because it's very easy to be criticised for maybe coming out of lockdown too early, because it's very easy to see if you made a mistake. But it's much more difficult to be criticised for coming out of lockdown too late, because it's, it's, it's much more difficult to, to see a mistake in that context. So that makes it much more... That, perhaps biases us towards coming out of the lockdown a bit later. And uh, perhaps, of course, you, sh- you know, prudent policy should perhaps err on the side of, lo- of coming out of lockdown a bit later, but um, it, it creates a lot of challenges. Um, and another factor that, that comes to mind is that when it comes to implementing the lockdown, 
we had perhaps the Italian case study and a few other case studies of what could happen if perhaps things don't go as well as they could have. When it comes to coming out of a lockdown, all countries seem to be approaching this at pretty much the same time. So you can't really wait because if you do wait, you've actually made the decision. You've, you've come out of the lockdown a bit later. So I think it's there's a lot of balance. There's a, it's a really difficult balancing act. And it's a balancing act that involves dealing with uncertainties and perhaps a lot of modeling effort and research efforts maybe need to go behind that in terms of modeling this, the epidemiological impacts relative to perhaps the economic impacts and other maybe health and economic impacts and coming out with perhaps a risk-averse strategy that takes into account all these other uh, factors that, that, are, that are at play. So I think the shift towards the ec- epidemiological focus towards a more interdisciplinary focus is something which, which, um, which, which is probably should be considered, I think, uh, going forward. And it's, it's very much a challenging uh, uh, issue. Yeah, I mean, uh, speaking as neither a health economist nor a macroeconomist, it does strike me that the crucial word in the whole process is uncertainty. Because the uncertainty has two impacts, just for brevity, we, we'll, we could mention. There's the impact on confidence that, of course, is consumer and investor. And that takes us back into animal spirits and macro, uh, which we've already talked a little bit about. But there's a second dimension about the uncertainty and that takes us into the health economic or mental health economic whatever term you want to use which is really about anxiety so i think there's a general phenomenon about anxiety and the social uh bads that are being caused and the issues i think for society about social capital and physical capital so you know when we look at hs2 and the proposed monies that have been suggested for hs2s or you know here in Ireland talking about, you know, bridges across the, the Irish Sea to Scotland. I mean, these huge, big capital projects, uh, when we think about the cost-benefit analysis, but actually things con- concerning mental health, happiness, et cetera, all that kind of stuff, uh, for a fraction of that cost, we could have multiple benefits. So I think that one thing that may come out of all of this may be a recalibration about the relative costs and benefits between different categories of spending. I mean, economists were always very good in, say, healthcare economics, thinking about qualities and thinking about, you know, hip replacements against uh, statins and uh, stopping people smoking. That was always good within health economics, but there was never a a concern to balance, you know, healthcare uh, benefits against, say, legal aid. So, I mean, there's a talk currently going on in the UK about the uh, legal aid budget. Um, It strikes me that, you know, there's a whole series of issues concerning value for money. Uh, And that that goes back to the issue about those uncertainties at the social level. Um, Regarding the political economy issue, I think, again, uh, borrowing sort of the idea of Paul Dolan, uh, uh, former health economist, now sort of experimental economist, the LSE talks about, is the way he's framed the, the recent... Uh, discussion goes back to an old uh, debate in health economics about uh, fair innings and about when you ask the public how they value something against the people who are affected by a a treatment, how they value the same thing, you can get very different results. Uh, So there's a long established literature and qualities that shows actually people adapt to an infirmity, like somebody with a limp 
or a mobility problem, when you ask the average member of the public their willingness to accept that, uh, you get a very different figure from the person who actually suffers that ailment. Why? Because people develop coping mechanisms. So actually this, this suggests an important factor in health economics or experimental economics more generally, that it's important who you ask if they have experience of the phenomena. Why that comes in is Paul Dolan then talks about the political economy in terms of intergenerational equity. And he makes the very uh, interesting observation that when we think about two dimensions in that regard, expectancy and experience, uh, then really what we're talking about is quantity of life and quality of life. People who are 80 years old have had an abundant quantity of life. <laughs> they may not have much uh, expectancy in the future, but there's an issue even about the quality of life. Policymakers, for understandable reasons, have focused very much on protection and focus on quantity of life for very, very understandable reasons that you've sort of alluded to earlier on. You know, you don't want to be too early in any lockdown. But that fear that they've engendered uh, has led to uh, economists, again, been marginalised within a lot of the, the policy-making decisions. So the schools are staying closed, despite the fact that like, someone like Karl Proper has pointed out, actually, the risk to children of, of walking to school or driving to school or whatever is much higher than any risk that they could see once in school uh, from COVID. Yet that message about relative risks just hasn't got into the public discourse. Um, I mean, you know, the value of life literature and the health economics literature, you know, have always um, said that, you know, the public, well, how the public evaluates a risk against the actual risks people face are two different things. Um, you know, there's, there's Viscusi has a famous paper in the Journal of Economic Literature survey on this. Um, why that all kicks in is that society, for understandable economy reasons, has protected uh, the old. We understand that, but there's an intergenerational issue. The intergenerational issue is that those uh, policy responses have, by accident rather than design, transferred uh, from the young to the old. But even within that phenomena, uh, we've had public policy failings. Uh, the, the care home situation has clearly, clearly been a massive failing in the UK uh, system. Um, so when we put it all together, we can see why risk-averse politicians um, have been willing, have been very much unwilling to sort of educate the public in relative risks. Partly because if you're trying to make a, a salient um, campaign for public information, it's quite a nuanced message you have to send out. Um, and and that, that makes it difficult. So I, I don't, I mean, while there are a lot of decisions I think policymakers have made, I think with retrospect, we can see we're wrong. Um, uh, they've been given a very difficult hand of cards to play, even if they've played the cards badly. Absolutely. No, there's, um, it's very difficult to make the perfect decision when uh, in, in, this, in this situation. Maybe we could move on because I think we, we, uh, we're on a tight time schedule. Um, so the next thing we wanted to talk about was um, in terms of business models and, and corporate strategy. And one, one thing that just before we went to that, that came to mind uh, in my thinking of that issue was we have we've been forced into a situation where we're doing a lot of remote working. Um, and anecdotally, I hear from a lot of people that if 
perhaps given this experience of remote working, if they had an opportunity to work two days a week, at least from home, they would consider maybe moving out of city centre locations and living in more rural areas and commuting then for the remainder of the days. And this is quite a low threshold in my mind. And I suppose there's a very much a rural urban split here. But if there was this desire, maybe perhaps for a lot of people to move into regional towns, we could see a lot of different dynamics. And we see it's perhaps a trade off between whatever amenities people get from living in cities, perhaps be it social and cultural amenities, versus the benefits of living in more uh, like rural or regional areas, perhaps better space, affordability, and the like. And you might, if I was trying to translate that into maybe some sort of dynamic, you might see a lot of people maybe if they're from a grew up in a rural area, move to cities maybe when they're younger for education, maybe the social amenities take priority at that stage of your life. But then later on, when you get a bit older, you you're no longer confined to the city because of of work. You now have perhaps a greater value on space and affordability. And then you might see people moving into regional towns when they're maybe late 20s, early 30s, and, and then onwards. And how, what does that mean for maybe the spatial distribution of, of economic activity and perhaps uh, of uh, the patterns of, of living? We could see it could be a lifeline to regional towns, which perhaps were losing a lot of the young population. We could see perhaps a switch from what would have been retail space maybe towards maybe working from home, co-working type space. In one hand, it could be a lifeline to these areas. On the other hand, we'd want to be careful in that we don't, that if there is additional uh, perhaps life and uh, perhaps um, economic activity surrounded regional locations, that it's it's done in a sustainable manner. So for example, a lot of maybe unsustainable building patterns could be considered a sunk cost up until now, but any additional uh, perhaps uh, development that, that occurs as a result of this, if there was a change in this regard, would have to be carefully planned to ensure that it was sustainable. Um, so I think a key message here is that if this leads to a changing pattern, I think uh, efficient and sustainable planning will be of a greater uh, priority than perhaps it may have been in the past. Um, so that would be my two cents on that, but I think you probably have, have other ideas. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, no, I, I, I tend to uh, agree. There's something going to happen spatially. I mean, I don't think we're going to see the death of distance, but I think we're going to see its relaxation. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So the way the way to frame it, um, and I, I, this is I'm influenced on recent comments by Chief Economist Ibeck Jared Brady, was they've been doing a little bit of work, preliminary work on this in the Irish context. Um. And what they're basically saying is that what they think will happen is actually the main driver will be commuting essentially in an east-west phenomena. That actually the spatial impact is in aggregate east-west within the Irish system and will remain so. But really what you're saying is a great uh, relaxation of commuting distances for Greater Dublin. Because, you know, Greater Dublin is the economic engine of Ireland. Uh, and then once you get outside of Dublin, then really what you're talking about, it's not primarily geography, it's education that's going to be the driver. The people who are going to be able to be doing Zoom meetings are people who work for accounting, consulting firms, lots of high-end service firms. Their human capital is really the issue. And what actually may attract people to locations is, yes, 
uh, amenities when they're younger, but the amenities when you're older, they're just different amenities. <laughs> you know, the quality of school versus the quality of nightclubs. You know, quality of nightclubs matters an awful lot more to twenty-year-olds. So I'm told. You know, you know, you know. It's not. It's not a. It's not a. It's not a. It's. It's a bit creepy if people in their forties are worried about quality of nightclubs. <laughs> you know. You know. Uh, so. Um, so you got to think about those sort of immunity issues, um, and it does mean I think that there are opportunities. You can see places that are uh, that maybe are commutable to Greater Dublin or Galway or Cork, for that matter. Um, being able to reorientate themselves by, you know, developing uh, public services and, and, and such like facilities that will be attractive to young couples and not so young couples as well. Um, so I do think that there that that issue will arise. I mean, there is an issue within Ireland that I do think that the Celtic Tiger period was shaped by the fact that Ireland has not been a great place to commute. Um, it's it, it has not had the commuter train services that, say, a Greater London had. Mm. You know, when I worked in Whitehall in the 1990s, people lived in Brighton, Northampton, Luton, I mean, all sorts of places. And they were all in Bristol. Uh, they were able to commute. Uh, now, I wouldn't favour commuting from Bristol to London, yeah. but it was feasible in the 1990s to commute between Bristol and London. It's not, it, during the Celtic Tiger, it wasn't feasible for people really to commute from Cork to Dublin in any shape or form. Um, you know, and for that reason, house prices, of course, get bid up in in, in Dublin. Uh, asset inflation. Well, we know the rest. Um, you know, the point the point is that there are very real uh, uh, macro uh, implications of these sorts of micro uh, changes. Um, and I think that before the lockdown, uh, some consultancy firms, accountancy firms of Belfast, had experimented. Before the long before the lockdown, with sending senior staff home a couple of days a week and discreetly tr- trying this out, um, and once they do do that, uh, they will come back. And it's very clear now, in elite circles that are going on, people are quite discreetly talking about the impact of commercial property um, because that's the real issue. And once people start talking about commercial property, then I think there's real. Ch- uh, there's a real discussion about uh, our inner cities, just as I think there's a real discussion about the high streets of our towns. Mm-hmm. You know, a world in which people are able to use Amazon uh, is a world where the, the high street retailers even further hard hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a world in which people can have Zoom meetings and don't have to uh, schlep around Glasgow Airport at six a.m. <laughs> you know, is a world and is a is a world in which um, uh, the, the the all sorts of business meetings are got rid of. Uh, finance directors are happy. People are at home, and there's no need for such expensive prime real estate office space in city centres. That means less sandwiches sold. <laughs> that you know, they're very simple. You know, th- this multiplier and all our introductory econ one hundred and one tells us that these are going to have very profound impacts for city centres, you know, maybe maybe cities have to be rezoned and, and planned as places where people can live. What if you do that, then of course that brings in issues of public services. You know, you have to stick in the schools and all those things in the city centres. So there are any number of, of public policy implications of the changing uh, 
cost-benefit calculus that individuals are going to make. Um, that, that, so, so yeah, that would be that would be my response to some of the points you're making. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, it's it's interesting to think that a lot of these co-working spaces were put in city centres, where in a world pre-COVID, where we would have had um, commuting into a city, like whereas now the the expectation. Well, my my the way I view the world would be that well perhaps these co-working spaces might have better value outside of the city centre because that's where people might be tending to, to work from home or whatever so it is yeah it, it is an interesting sort of shift in, the, in that regard uh, yeah, I, I think sometimes the, sometimes these places were just located because of prestige that it became uh, that, that it became you know once the once the first big four accountancy firm decided to have its office slap bang beside a tube station the other three decided, well, we have to, you know, despite the fact that there was really no reason for that to be. Okay, so the next thing we're, we were to discuss was issues such as regional impact, or I suppose we sort of touched on it a little bit, but had you any more insight there, Graham, in terms of, I suppose, uh, devolution or the devolved regions of, of the UK or impacts at a regional level? Well, there's a lot of, a lot of very interesting work going on in Scotland currently. Uh, Fraser Valander have done a lot of very very good stuff, um, and I, I think I think that you know we've always known intuitively the link between structural change and sort of re- spatial regional change, um, and I think the Fraser Valander of Scotland I think they've been very good at really linking those two together, um, and that's part of the challenge I think within Ireland North and South that I don't think the research has always been. Uh, I put that to the forefront, that observation. Uh, very clear that you're going to have to because it's, it's clear that Ireland, North and, well, North not so much because I think we've fallen as far as we can, but South is going to experience deindustrialization. Uh, some manufacturing is just not going to be there that currently is there. Uh, that process has already occurred in Scotland, uh, but there are spatial differences within Scotland. And Scotland, of course, is a very different regional economy to other parts of the UK. So I think when you, you put it together, the, what you see are the composition of your economy very much is going to impact if you do better or worse than the average. So if you think about a weight, think about it about weights, you know, are you overweighted or underweighted in the sector? Certain sectors, if you're overweighted in, you're going to do badly. Certain sectors, if you're underweighted, you're going to do well. Tourism is a big one, okay? Tourism is a massive issue. Scotland uh, is more reliant on tourism than the UK average, okay? Uh, And in particular, the bits of Scotland that are most reliant on tourism are bits like the Highlands and Islands, uh, which don't have an awful lot of other alternatives. The difference between that and, say, Edinburgh is, yeah, tourists come to see Edinburgh, but Edinburgh has a lot of other things going on in its its economy. Um, That's not true in uh, Inverness direction. Um, if we if we think about that, why is it so harmful? What's going on? Well, it's, it's harmful because it isn't just the volume of tourism that matters; it's the composition of tourism that matters. Foreign tourists who make up the 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 blind share of the tourist business in Scotland, they spend more and they stay longer than domestic or UK tourists. Um, and a similar pattern you would see within Ireland. Um, consequently, it's not just uh, 
the volume of tourism that matters, it's it's the composition of the tourism. So, you know, they really want to get tourists back as quickly as possible. But that's easier said than done because of the fear factor. A lot of people who were previously going on flights across the world from Japan and America to Scotland now will fear flying. And even if they do fly, they'll be less minded to go and, and, and stay. So all of that feeds into a phenomenon where there's very different regional impacts, very different spatial impacts. The data looks like Northern Ireland was perhaps not if already in recession before COVID. It certainly was going stagnantly before COVID. Um, in the case of Northern Ireland, the spatial thing that makes me worry is the impact of COVID very much on changing unemployment from uh, to long-term unemployment. I mean, unemployment, we, we tend to think of as, you know, not just demand-based, but, you know, frictional or structural. Um, COVID is now creating a real problem in Ireland, north and south, or I think of structural long-term unemployment. Because you think about why long-term unemployment emerges, it's, it emerges for three reasons. Uh, people get discouraged by being unemployed. Uh, people get uh, sort of screened out for jobs. And they get de-skilled. And these three things mean that once a person becomes unemployed, there is a danger that they can stay unemployed. And so, you know, if you look at the levels of high unemployment, the 80s and 90s in Ireland, North and South, uh, what you noticed about, say, in Northern Irish case was not only did it high, have higher levels of unemployment than the rest of the UK, but it was disproportionately long-term unemployment. Mm. Um, now, uh, and I think there's, a, there, there's also worrying figures about um, the pay cuts people got in, the, in Ireland during the Great Financial Crash, uh, unemployment versus what could happen now. Uh, people, you know, what you saw down south in 2078 wasn't just when people were laid off uh, and they got back a job. They didn't get back the job the same wage they had before. They didn't get the same job back. They got a different job, and it was, I think, on average, 20% less pay. Mm. You know, if that's repeated and magnified, that's a massive hit. Uh, so you've got a phenomenon of economic inactivity. You've got a phenomenon of, of pay cuts. Uh, all of this means that really, to be serious about regional problems in, in Ireland or Britain, uh, you policymakers really have to be serious about skills. Yeah. Uh, really have to be serious. One interesting, just just one interesting thing that, that, that I noticed was that, and it makes a lot of sense, that a driver of some of the more negative impacts are, for example, a lot, if there's a higher proportion of maybe young people who don't go on to higher education, they're people who are on the job market. And if we have a hit in terms of employment, when well, we're going to see a lot of a higher, it's going to have a higher impact on perhaps um, the younger population or whatever in, in that context. So that's, it seems to be, yeah, that could be a driver in terms of some of the regional dynamics. Yeah, I mean, what it, I, I mean, what it, I suggest it thinks, it suggests is that a one size fits all approach in higher education really won't work, say in the UK. It's a different story in Ireland because Ireland has far fewer universities, but it has the ITs. Um, so Ireland has actually, you know, I think been very clear in, in this distinction of the universities and the ITs. Uh, the UK, of course, since 92, has basically got rid of the polytechnics, made them all universities. 
it strikes me that that has been mixed. If you look at the, we could talk about higher education finance. There's very mixed performance in terms of higher education finance in GB. But what what, oppor- what opportunity does exist for a lot of institutions of higher education is there are a lot of people that will want skills and retraining uh, after this crisis. And a lot of people will also realize that if you don't have a degree, you are your lifetime earnings are at a disadvantage. So what this does suggest to me is it could be through the open university or it could be more general for provincial universities, is there is a scope to re-pivot a lot of their business models towards uh, offering training to uh, workers. Now, that in turn leads to a public policy challenge of pe- people being able to get uh, loans to fund that study. Um, uh, and, and then maybe that, that, that's where that arises. I think in, 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 in Ireland with the IT system, I think they've probably already got a niche through the IT system where people uh, could be facilitated in that way. Uh, as I said, Ireland has far fewer universities. Yeah. So it, does, it, doesn't, it doesn't have that issue. Absolutely. And the IT system tends to be more, the sort of, it's more very practical. So it definitely fills that niche, uh, most definitely. Um, okay, so the final thing that we wanted to talk about was maybe more long-term impacts such as sustainability and globalization. Um, related to the to the opening up issue, one thing that I always I think a lot about now is that it's it, it's a very rare situation where we have a lot of um, maybe when you think about sustainability and environmental um, uh, motivation, that sort of drive coincides with maybe perhaps industry and other other parties. So if you think about it, we're at a stage where we're trying to reopen. Uh, a lot of our retail and our, our restaurants and bars in particular, in a lot of cases, the first eight out of every 10 customers in the door or there thereabouts are just to cover costs. The last few are what make it worth their while to, to make the profit. But if we're in a world of social distancing for the next year or so, it, that's not going to work because you can't have maybe a limited capacity restaurant. It's, in a lot of cases, it's not going to pay the bills. However, on the other hand, we would have seen a lot of motivation over the last few years in terms of a lot of people who were promoting perhaps sustainable uses of the city spaces and would suggest maybe taking cars and buses out of city centres and maybe open them, opening them up and pedestrianising them. This is an opportunity where we can maybe kill those two, both of those birds with one stone where we can perhaps open up these city spaces this is purely from a we're talking in theory, first of all, open up those city spaces, allow them to be used for industry uh, or for maybe bars and restaurants where they can have their social distancing. They have the space to, to have their perhaps um, to get enough customers in order to make it worth their while to open. So we're, we're letting the economy reopen in a socially distanced world. We're thinking about repurposing city spaces to be more uh, beneficial in terms of an environmental context and whatever other uh, benefits come alongside that. It's one of the few occasions where we have these two sides that may be perhaps a loggerheads beforehand and now are on the same the same side of the coin. And another issue then is that we don't have the, the inertia that comes with a, a well-performing economy that sort of maybe is that tension with a lot of sustainable... Um, sustainable progress. Now, in a Dublin context, you see a lot of talk about turning College Green outside Trinity into 
a green, essentially. And that could be one example where you could have this open space where people go out and it's a pedestrianised area and you could have turned into maybe an area where you could have bars and restaurants. It sounds nice, but when it's a rainy day in, in, uh, in January or February, maybe perhaps less nice. But it's an interesting thought that this is an occasion where we can maybe use, these, use this as a launch pad for changes that perhaps might be required if we think about maybe climate targets or whatever in the longer term. Yeah, I mean, in terms of hospitality, I mean, again, going back to uh, Jerry Brady, the comments he made recently, uh, he was saying that um, with the social distancing at two metres, that means that bars are only an hour to go to operate at 20 to 30% capacity. Mm. Uh, but the break-even figure is really about 80%. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, consequently, you know, <laughs> this is again where Econ 101 comes in, that our, you know, fixed costs are there, and those fixed costs need to be covered. And social distancing means you just don't cover those fixed costs. You, a lot of those businesses, you just don't have. Um, leaving aside the issue of, you know, being contact intensive and face-to-face, etc. Uh, I mean, what I think, if you're optimistic, and I would be optimistic about entrepreneurs, but uh, it requires cooperation from the planning system, um, that I think innovations could emerge, uh, which would suggest that we would probably see fewer bars and pubs, but we would see them geared towards the consumers in different ways and probably a higher quality service. So if you think about it, you know, historically, businesses always, you know, face challenges. You know, how historically did cinema respond to television? Well, for decades, it did a whole bunch of things and eventually ended up the current model of the multiplex. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think that what yeah. we see, what no, I no. think. Yeah. No, no. One, one thing you just inspired me there and any entrepreneurs, they can give me a call if they want to do this but you could have your um your your pedestrianized square area where it's just a public seating area and then you go to your restaurant and you get a takeaway and then you come in and sit down and therefore it's not it's socially distanced anyway as you say there are loads of different solutions here that that that, that require a bit of innovation a bit of creative thought i suppose yeah i mean the and the issue is within the regulations um there's any number of of suggestions for innovations that people can come up with. The problem in Ireland, North and South has often been the computer says no, the regulations of planning in various forms uh, stifle these things. Um, so I think definitely in hospitality, social distancing, etc. I think there are models in that regard. Um, regarding the environment, of course, I think there are win-win solutions. Um, uh, I think that, you know, given that we now have a pool of unemployment, uh, and we have issues about energy efficiency, then yeah, I do think it makes a lot of sense to build housing and re- refurbish housing in more environmentally friendly ways. That creates you know environmental benefits and creates building jobs. Uh, and and building uh, house building has a very high multiplier because of course you hire the, the workers. The workers are hired, earning their wages while they build. And once built, then the people who live in the house need to buy the furniture, etc., etc. Uh, tradesmen need to maintain it, etc., etc. 
uh, you know, it's a very you know simple model. It's maybe not the sexiest, you know, ribbon cutting type phenomenon. You know, it's completely contrary to NHS two or a bridge across the Irish Sea. It's not that kind of thing. But the cost the cost benefit analysis, I think, probably without doing the calculations myself, just intuitively strikes me at, at relatively low cost, you can have a lot of benefits, uh, both economically and environmentally. Um, because you know a lot of the environmental well, you know better than I do a lot of these environmental challenges certainly haven't gone away Absolutely, you know, yeah. we, we might be worried about COVID but you know climate change hasn't been told that you know. there's been plenty of memes about um, people focusing on COVID but uh, yeah, climate change being a larger uh, a larger thing on the horizon um, I, so I, I suppose just the final thing we wanted to talk about was globalisation um, I suppose a lot a lot of different uh, ways in which this could affect globalization. In some sense, we're the move to remote working and zooming means that we perhaps are interacting with people further distance with with greater ease. But then we see the frigidity of global supply chains in some cases, or and perhaps we might want to onshore a lot of things that were perhaps outsourced um, prior to that. So. My own take on that would be that we could see a recalibration in the value of having. Um, I think it's it the risk profile of uh, importing goods has changed relative to what it was before this, and that might lead to a recalibration. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, um, okay. So if we break it into manufacturers and services, we start with services. Uh, well, the Zoom is going to work to the advantage of the high-value human capital-intensive businesses that offer really unique bits of advice are ahead of the curve. Also, the creative industries, uh, people who are most creative. You know, going back to the earlier point, really creative people don't necessarily want to be living slap by in the city centre if they don't have to. Sure. I was thinking about this earlier on as well, but you think about cities like Paris and Berlin and even in Galway in Ireland have, have a reputation for being areas of creativity and you like to be around other like-minded people to throw ideas around. So I, I wonder how that would, maybe some, I, like if you're a poet, you like to be locked up in a log cabin on your own, but perhaps sometimes, um, yeah, th- there are there are benefits of agglomeration. In, it'd be interesting to see how this would, social distancing affects that. But uh. I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously there's periods of creativity, like uh, Edinburgh in the 18th century and Vienna in the late 19th century where, Proximity of other geniuses helps other geniuses, yeah. but I wonder whether that's always the case. Um, uh, you know, uh, there were plenty of people in 19th, 20th century Dublin who, yeah, were geniuses, but there were an awful lot of other people who weren't geniuses. But they were they were very close to the geniuses, and a lot of those geniuses had to leave Dublin, uh, not least because of proximity of people who weren't geniuses. Um, so I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Um, but going back to the point about um, services, I do think it does mean really high-value-added human capital-intensive businesses are going to have an advantage. It also means that communication is key uh, and geography is key. I think some firms are just going to do really well out of it. Uh, they're going to really exploit this new model very well. But I think that's the level of firms. Um, 
In terms of manufacturers, I think that's that's an interesting story. I think now what we saw with COVID is what we've seen independently around the world is essentially emergency Keynesianism at the level of each nation state. We didn't see the EU really act as one force, as one voice. Uh, future historians will, will note at the same time Britain was leaving uh, the EU, when a challenge did arise, it's hard to say that the EU acted as one voice. It didn't. Um, you know, um, what I think we'll see uh, in the case of manufacturers, again, is a political economy point. I think the political economy pressures are now going to be very strong, that I don't believe that things like pharmaceuticals, medical, medical technologies, etc., could ever again be totally globalised. There's too much risk aversion. Um, and, you know, it's also the case that it's not, you can't just buy these um, PP equipment and things like that one off and just stick it away and store it. These things have like best before hits. Mm. So it's just like checking your cupboard to make sure everything's in date, <laughs> you know, or your fridge. Uh, that is the way that these things are, which means that you have to not just buy it once off at the cheapest price. You have to be able to buy it and then re replenish it. And that means that perhaps it might be in your interest uh, to ensure that, that you have a ready access to those supplies to hand. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I, no, I, I can see a lot more preparation for issues such as this, health issues um, going forward. And yeah, and onshore, not... not yeah, on unshorn on resources in that regard. Yeah, I mean, and some companies like Ford uh, in car production or uh, any any aircraft manufacturer of any size in the civilian sector uh, have all created business models of rival production centers where different parts of the production center produces different parts of the, the vehicle. So essentially the UK doesn't build cars and forward and has done so for some time but it builds part you know engines and newport whatever uh that sort of jigsaw puzzle or model kit sort of model where you assemble your global uh, value chain um assumes of course freedom of parts and freedom of movement of these these parts etc we've seen now that that challenge uh, means that some factories just were closed down, not because of a problem in the factory, but because there were some parts from China that couldn't be brought into the into the factory. Mm. And so the whole thing ground to halt. <laughs> um, that, again, may be a, a further stimulus for extra costs in the system, because what you might do as an insurance uh, is you build uh, extra capacity. It's a bit like in the early 1970s, during the Troubles, some Northern Irish firms uh, rented warehousing in GB um, as an insurance against the against being able to fulfil orders in Northern Ireland. That was yeah. an extra cost they took on board. It was a risk. Now, in that case, it didn't last very long because the level of violence of early 70s levels didn't continue that at that level. Um, <coughs> but but it, was a, it was a rational response um, and something... Something analogous to that may be, for some businesses, maybe what they have to do. Mm. No, it'd be interesting 
it gives interesting insight into the levels of risk aversion in different industries and the extent to which they prepare for something that perhaps would have a relatively low probability of happening um and how um, yeah and how, how costly it would be for a, a, a perhaps a high impact but low probability event um okay, I, but i mean the insurance the insurance markets may force them into this because even if they don't think it's a risk their insurers may say it is a risk and we want you right. to copy yourself Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, look at all the areas of, say, maritime law uh, and the areas of maritime economics. I mean, look at all those shipping insurers and the way they force shipping firms to do all sorts of things, you know, because of risks of piracy and all that we, we might think, you know, are yeah. are not there. You know, so there's, there's, there's a whole series. It's not, you may not as a firm think that these risks exist, but if the people you rely on for insurance and capital think there is a risk and say the price of getting that, Mm. insurance or capital you've got to behave this way you may have to behave that way absolutely that is interesting insight um, okay so I think I, I think we've sort of covered everything and time is uh, I think we're out of time so maybe we should <laughs> we should probably yeah press stop okay Pandemic the podcast series from Queen's University Belfast Please rate and review and share this podcast.